This is the DLA Piper UK Employment Law Podcast, the series that looks at the biggest UK employment law issues that HR professionals and in-house counsel are facing right now. This podcast will give you all the insights and expertise you need directly from our employment law team. Hello, I'm Kate Hodgkiss. I'm an employment partner at DLA Piper, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Lisa Roberts, an immigration specialist, to find out more about what we all need to know to ensure that we don't get left behind now that the UK has left the European Union. Hi, Lisa. What does the end of the transition period that we all hear about really mean for employers? So the end of the transition period um, is coming to an end on the 31st of December. Now, we actually left the European Union on the 31st of January. And when that happened at the start of the year, it did feel like 11 months was probably a reasonable amount of time for businesses to prepare uh, for post-Brexit Britain. Then obviously the COVID pandemic hit, uh, which actually had a huge impact on most, if not all, UK businesses. And that's meant that a lot of businesses are now on the back foot uh, where it comes to, to Brexit planning. Now, for UK-centric businesses with a local UK workforce and trading with UK business partners, they might require some further information and knowledge about what a post-Brexit Britain is. But by and large, they won't be hugely impacted on the immigration side of things. But for other businesses, they're going to be really impacted. Businesses such as those that have a transient workforce that rely quite heavily on EU labour, um, ones that spring to mind are hospitality, construction, manufacturing. Also those that use a seasonal and temporary EU work- workforce, those that get people in for the summer period um, or the Christmas period to help out, as well as those working on small scale projects uh, in the UK. And then lastly, those with a, a mobile UK workforce, Those are British citizens that are working with clients on EU projects. So they're going frequently into the European Union to provide services. The end of the transition period is going to be a complete mind shift for um, UK nationals who are going into the EU for business and leisure. At the moment, we just hop on a plane. Um, We don't have to think too much about what we're doing or how long we're staying in the European Union uh, from an immigration viewpoint. Um, But actually, from the 1st of January, the UK is going to be likely subject to the Schengen area, which means that we're actually limited in the terms of the amount of time that we can spend in that particular area. Um, It's 90 days in any rolling 180 day period. And you can see how people that visit the EU frequently for business and leisure could quite quickly rack up 90 days. Lisa, I'd like to pick up on your comment relating to business travel. Now, I know that since lockdown has impacted on so much of Europe that business travel is hardly high on our list of priorities at the moment. But obviously the expectation is that as things become more relaxed, that business travel hasn't died a death and will come back to life. What are the implications for employers who have staff who either need to travel um, to be physically present in an, in a particular country or indeed want to be present in a particular country in order to essentially show their face. And I'm thinking particularly um, where an employee might land in one European country, 
But in order to reduce their traveling, they schedule appointments in multiple European countries at the same time. So they carry on and they move on to a different location. You've mentioned the 90 day period. Does that 90 day period apply to each of those individual member states or does it start from the point that they land? It starts from the point that they land and you will count each trip towards that 90 day period. And that's why I think this is going to be a real challenge for a lot of companies, particularly where their workforce were previously quite mobile and they were making perhaps, you know, a trip a month into into Europe. Businesses are going to have to formulate a robust business traveller policy. Now, for some international businesses, they'll already have that because they already have perhaps US nationals travelling into Europe or uh, Japanese nationals travelling into Europe. For companies that have previously not had to do that, they're going to really need to uh, formulate a travel policy that makes it very clear about what individuals can be doing in each country and also calculating time in those countries. I think, you know, we we tend to see that a lot of companies don't appreciate that that 90 day period is for the full Schengen area, not per country. And it counts towards both business and leisure travel, which means that if you do travel a lot for business and then you also like to go and take your summer holiday, perhaps at a villa in Spain and you'll spend a month there, you could quite quickly exceed that 90 day period. And your business won't necessarily know uh, when people go on holiday. Um, They don't have to tell their employer where they're going. And this this is going to be something that businesses are going to have to deal with quite delicately to ensure that people don't exceed that 90 day period in the Schengen area. It's quite a lot of penalties that can be triggered where somebody does exceed that 90 day period. Um, and that could include a ban from returning to that area, which could be quite embarrassing if it's a chief executive who now can't visit Europe. Another thing that businesses are going to also need to take into consideration as well as just your your general Joe blogs on the street, is health insurance. At the moment, we don't have to particularly worry about health insurance because we have the eHIC card. Uh, In order to enter the Schengen area, you do have to have health insurance. And if you don't have health insurance, they could bar you from entering. People are going to have to make sure that they are covered for both business trips, which mostly companies will cover as part of their business traveller policy, but also people going on holiday, checking they've got that that travel insurance in place that covers to a sufficient level uh, for the Schengen area. Otherwise, they could be turned around at the border and sent back. I know that that prospect of being turned around at the border is something that plays heavily on individuals' minds. And I can understand why, quite honestly, that would be something that you would bear in mind when you're undertaking business travel. Are there any documents or um, Is there any assistance that an employer can provide to an employee who is actually going on a business trip in terms of documents from the employer to support the travel or the reason for the trip? Yeah. Having a return ticket is is going to now be mandatory when you visit Europe. You will need to show that you are planning to exit uh, the the Schengen area. Um, Also, businesses can supply an employer support letter, which will set out Uh, what they're doing in Europe, why they're in Europe, how long they're staying and the activities they're going to be undertaken. For some companies, they'll already have that because, like I say, they might have had it for a US national visiting Europe. 
But for companies that previously haven't had to do that, they'll need to start formulating some, some boilerplate letters that HR can quickly run off when somebody needs to visit Europe last minute. The other thing I would point out is travel into the Schengen area. There is no sort of standard business traveller policy in terms of activities you can perform in the whole area. They are still domestic countries and each country will have their own set of rules about what business visitors can and can't do in that particular country. That's something we've seen over the last couple of months when instructed by clients is how much that information can vary from country to country. For instance, in the Netherlands, they're quite clear about what you can can do in the Netherlands. But some other countries, it's a little bit more vague and individuals are going to have to be a little bit more careful about uh, what they intend to do and perhaps seek advice before they travel to ensure that they can do what they're planning to do. Generally speaking, business meetings are almost always fine wherever you're going in the world. But if you're doing something a bit more involved, um, off the top of my head, something that has cropped up recently are, are people going in to uh, perhaps audit um, IT equipment. That may not be always possible in the country that you're visiting. Um, and businesses are going to need to start to reflect on what people can do in those countries and sometimes get a visa in place in order to facilitate that particular business trip. I have some clients who have commuter arrangements with individuals who live in the UK but then travel to Europe on a weekly basis and undertake a number of days work in a European country and then return to the UK at the weekend. Are those arrangements still going to be possible? Potentially, yes. Uh, There is a frontier worker who uh, people are able to register in the particular country that they're visiting um, in order to get that frontier worker status. Now, there are minimum criteria. So you mentioned their weekly trips in. Perhaps somebody is working in Switzerland, uh, but living in the UK and travels on a weekly basis. That person would more than likely be able to get a frontier worker. Where arrangements are a bit more ad hoc, perhaps individuals do travel uh, fairly frequently, perhaps, but perhaps not on a weekly basis, or they travel to a number of different European countries on a frequent basis, the frontier worker may not be so appropriate. They'll need to be assessed on a case-by-case basis, and with companies that do have that particular arrangement, they should get some legal advice about what that particular individual needs to do in order to preserve their working right in the European country. It's interesting you're talking about people going from the UK to Europe and visiting, but what about our European colleagues who are either in the UK at the moment or would like to come into the UK in the future in order to work? What are the implications for those individuals? Freedom of movement is going to end at 11 o'clock on the 31st of December. Now, anybody arriving by 11 o'clock on the 31st of December should be able to stay and they'll be applying under the EU settlement scheme that I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, have heard about. That EU settlement scheme essentially preserves the individual's free movement right for a certain period of time. Now, the application process itself is, is pretty quick and easy for most people. Uh, you'll download a Home Office app Um, you scan your passport, you answer a few personal questions, and then some individuals may have to provide further evidence to prove their UK residence. For those individuals, they've got until the 30th of June 2021 to apply. Uh, This is called a grace period, 
which will last from the 1st of January to the 30th of June. Now, it's really important that people do apply. Those that don't apply may lose the right to stay in the UK and they may be termed illegal. For those arriving after the 31st of December, um, they're treated as third country nationals, which means they will be subject to the new immigration system and they will need a domestic UK visa in order to live and work in the UK. That's really helpful for individuals to know. When I've been out and about uh, over recent months, I've noticed an increasing number of advertisements encouraging employers to get ready Um, But I never really see exactly what it is that employers are meant to be doing. The the information always seems to disappear before I get there. So what are employers really meant to be doing at this point in time? And actually, is it already too late? The government have done a big marketing campaign um, to alert people to the end of the transition period. It's definitely not too late to get ready. Uh, But the adverts are quite simplistic. Um, They sort of say that you need to get ready for the end of the transition period. Um, If you employ uh, European nationals from the 1st of January, you'll need a sponsor licence. You need to pay a fee and you need to wait eight weeks. That's not the full story. Uh, In order to obtain a licence, companies will need to assemble various corporate documentation. Uh, They need to ensure that you really understand the principles of sponsorship and ensure they've got the necessary processes in place to accommodate the licence. And they also need to make a submission to the government. They also might receive a pre-licence audit, uh, which means the Home Office will want to come and visit them before they're even granted a licence. Now, typically, when a pre-licence audit is involved, the application process does take longer than eight weeks. And almost all UK sponsors will normally get a post-licence audit at some point in the duration of holding that sponsor licence. It's really important for companies to understand what holding a licence entails. Getting the licence itself is only a sort of small fraction of the responsibilities of holding a licence. Sponsors will need to uh, obtain um, certain record-keeping documentation and also meet sponsorship compliance. If they don't meet those obligations, the government can take away that licence from them, which means they can't sponsor anybody new. And those that they are currently sponsoring will have their visas curtailed. That sounds like quite a lot of work for employers to do, both now and in the future. How does that fit in with the famous new immigration system that we've all heard about? And how is that going to impact upon employers? Is it going to be helpful or is it going to be even more red tape for employers to take into account? There's been a lot of noise about the the new Australian-style points-based system. It's not actually massively different to the existing system we have in place. And much of the underlying framework will still exist, such as holding a sponsorship licence. We'll see quite a lot of rebranding with the existing immigration categories. So, for instance, Tier 2 General will become known as the Skilled Worker Visa. Uh, Tier 2 Intracompany Transfer will change to Intracompany Transfer. Uh, Tier 4 will change to Student. There'll be a revival of previous uh, immigration categories. So, for instance, they're introducing something called a graduate visa, which is very similar to the uh, previous tier one post-study work visa that some listeners might remember uh, was around about 10 years ago. 
They're also looking at bringing in a highly skilled work visa, which, again, listeners might recall, sounds rather familiar uh, as the tier one general visa, which also closed around uh, 10 years ago. The biggest changes we'll see to the system are actually really welcome for business. They're reducing the skill level for a skilled worker visa. At the moment, that's RQF level six, which is at a degree level. And that's going to be reduced to RQF level three, which is A-levels. They're also reducing the minimum salary that's required for sponsorship. At the moment, that sits at £30,000 per year. That's going to be reduced to £25,600. They're also getting rid of the resident labour market test, which I know a lot of recruiters will be jumping for joy over. However, there is a small wrinkle that the government have sort of snuck in on their statement of changes that uh, employers will still need to prove that it is a genuine vacancy. Don't have an awful lot of information about what that might entail, uh, but rumours are that it may be uh, employers have to show some sort of recruitment from the labour market, but not as strict as the current resident labour market test. Another really appreciated change to the system um, is the removal of the cooling off period. At the moment, those that hold a tier two visa are effectively barred from re-entering the UK for a 12-month period once their visa comes to an end. The government are actually removing that cooling off period, which I think is really welcome to individuals um, who might have had to return overseas from the pandemic and won't have to wait 12 months now to return. Now, the, the one big consistent throughout the whole new immigration system is the sheer cost of it. And that's going to come as a real shock to people that previously haven't had to use the immigration system and will be probably quite surprised about how much it costs. There'll be an immigration skills charge, which is charged per individual you sponsor per year. And there's also going to be an immigration health surcharge, which is charged per person per year. And those can be quite quickly rack up, particularly if you're bringing uh, a partner or a spouse and children to the UK. DLA have got a really handy government fee calculator, uh, which will be available on the DLA Piper website. That's a bit of a roller coaster ride then for employers, as you've outlined it. It started off sounding a bit like the emperor's new clothes and there was very little change. Then you went into all of the advantages and I got excited by those. And then suddenly you mentioned that ugly word cost. And of course, all employers are desperately trying to reduce cost after a very costly period with the pandemic. But you did mention skilled workers. And I have clients who have in the past utilised low skilled workers in order to um, maximise their profitability and to function um, consistently. And you've also mentioned the fact that a lot of employees who might have been in the UK at the start of the pandemic may have returned home to family and friends to save money and to actually be with their family during a very difficult time. Have you got any comfort for employers who have used unskilled workers in the past? Or is it going to be very different from what you've just outlined for the skilled worker programme? Unfortunately, it's not good news for employers that do uh, employ low skilled uh, migration. And I like to use low skilled in inverted commas because I think we all know that a lot of these people aren't low skilled, but they have a particular technical skill that the government don't acknowledge is skilled. When the initial consultation happened on the new immigration system, uh, the government were 
were quite clear that they were unwilling to accommodate any low skilled visa categories. And that's a particular blow for a lot of our clients in the hospitality industry, manufacturing and food production sectors. We know that a lot of these roles don't attract big salaries. And whilst there is a lowering of the skill level, which is welcome to some employers, that doesn't tell the full story. Although some some positions that previously weren't able to be sponsored will now be able to be sponsored, it doesn't accommodate all positions. Uh, There is still a minimum salary attached, which I think we know for some positions in the labour market, they will never get to 25,600. There's also the, the issue of the huge visa cost that companies will have to incur. And there doesn't seem to be any accommodation for those in seasonal work. So people who do fit into the skilled category, but they're not coming for particularly long periods of time because the nature of their work is particularly seasonal, such as those who are doing Christmas preparation work in the food manufacturing sector. The one sector that is helped for uh, low skilled work is the edible horticultural uh, industry. Um, now, I did have to look up what edible horticultural actually meant. Uh, that's your fruit and veg pickers. Um, and they can apply for a seasonal worker visa, but it is restricted to those in who are picking fruit and veg. So it only really helps a very specific sector. I'm sure that that's going to be a disappointment and a particular challenge for many employers. But if we look at everything in in the whole, Are there any key takeaways for businesses? With the COVID pandemic, I think a lot of people won't necessarily feel the immediate pinch of uh, the end of the transition period, particularly those industries that have people who are able to work from home. I think the biggest challenge we'll see is uh, particularly in relation to companies where relocation has been delayed. Um, We've had quite a few clients that have had relocations penned in for the the first, well, for the last nine months. And they've been consistently pushed back because of uh, lockdowns and then um, national lockdowns and, and, and that sort of thing. Now, for those individuals who've had their relocation pushed back, um, it's it's sometimes going to be that they won't be able to benefit under that EU settlement scheme and instead they'll have to re- now require sponsorship. So that means companies are going to need to budget for that uh, particular process that they hadn't previously had to do. Another thing that probably will affect all businesses is onboarding and checking individuals have the right to work. Something businesses can do right now is check their policies to ensure they fully encompass uh, the, the changes to the immigration system and also to stay informed of government changes. As we'll talk about in a moment, uh, there is a certain amount of uncertainty surrounding right to work checks, and that may well change in the next couple of months. All interesting points, but just to go back on your comment relating to right to work checks, then whilst this has been in place for many years now, and employers understand their obligation to do it, it still presents practical challenges and difficulties for employers, which I think are unintended um, by the existing rules. It's been further complicated during the pandemic when you've been onboarding staff remotely. And I know that employers are worried about being compliant as the changes come into effect. Have you got any tips or guidance as to what employers should be looking for in the future? This has been by far the most popular query that we've dealt with over the last couple of months. 
For British citizens, those holding indefinite leave to remain and non-European nationals with a visa, it's going to largely remain unchanged. But the real change is going to be for onboarding EU nationals. At the moment, when you onboard an EU national, you'll just look at their EU passport or EU ID card. That's all going to change in 2021. So from July 2021, all EU nationals, regardless of when they arrived in the UK, will need to show evidence of their pre-settled or settled status under the EU settlement scheme, or they'll need to show a UK domestic visa. Now, there's a real question mark about what happens during the first six months of next year. So that grace period, 1st of January through to the 30th of June. We all know that individuals who arrive up until the 31st of December are entitled to apply under the EU settlement scheme and those applying on the fir- those coming on the 1st of January will need a visa. We may be in a situation where an EU national has a right to work in the UK, they arrived before the 31st of December, but they haven't yet made their application under the EU settlement scheme. And there's a question mark there about how businesses actually handle that particular situation. Employers are kind of going into the first six months of the year a bit blind at the moment. The government have been incredibly busy dealing with COVID and also formulating this new immigration system. Uh, And they haven't yet provided further information about right to work checks, which actually I think is is more key because it affects more people. We're really hopeful that the government might provide further information on this over the next couple of weeks. But it is at the moment very much watch this space. Thanks, Lisa. That was really interesting. There was lots of helpful tips. There was lots of information that I'm sure many individuals and many employers will find very useful. If anybody does want further information, then please do go to the DLA Piper website where there is lots of assistance and guidance for you, which will help you put Lisa's sound advice into good practice. That was Kate Hodgkiss. Speak to me, Lisa Roberts. Any information in this podcast is for general guidance only and is correct as of the date of recording. This podcast is not intended to be and should not be used as a substitute for taking legal advice in any specific situation. For full terms and conditions, please see our website. Please do get in touch to let us know what issues you'd like to see us cover in future episodes. Email us at employment at dlapiper.com. Please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Thank you for listening.